There was once a man who was made to complete a journey. It was not that he was coerced, nor was he made to travel against his will. It was simply that he found himself journeying, and there was only the journey, and that was that. Eventually, the man's journey led him to a road that concluded in a fork, and though the destination offered by either of the two available choices were not visible, the man observed two strange and seemingly paradoxical indications of what may lie ahead. To his right, the first road was wide and accommodating, the terrain was flat and even, it was covered in soft green grass, the sky was bright and blue overhead and cloudless indeed. And there was a homely wooden sign that marked the path, and on its gnarled, weathered si uh, surface was fixed a single word, and that word was death. To the man's left, the road was nothing like the first. It was tight and winding, overgrown thorns and brambles lined both sides. There was a, a canopy of leafless branches enclosing overhead like this tapestry of splintering bones. It was dark and frightening, and set before it was a sign not unlike the first in appearance, but written across it was a different word, and that word was life. Now, the... Uh, the motif of misleading choices is, of course, a prevalent one in fiction, if you know uh, any amount of fiction. Dory, for example, wants to navigate the treacherous-looking trench, and Marlin wants to go over it. Uh, Donovan, he selects the most princely grail, a golden chalice that's like studded with emeralds, while Indiana Jones selects an unimpressive, blemished wooden cup. But... Before there was Finding Nemo or Indiana Jones in the Last Crusade, there was, of course, Jesus. So turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. Two days ago, I'm told uh, by the calendar, fall officially began. This means that some of you are lamenting the end of summer and that I am dancing on summer's grave. <laughs> which I was told maybe too much. But that seems appropriate. Not enough. There you go. That's the spirit. It also means that we are beginning our second ever annual vision series. So this is sort of a time for us as a church to take a moment, circle up, as it were, and remind one another of what we're doing here and why. Because like many life rhythms, even really good ones, church can sort of get set to autopilot. We do what we've always done, give or take. There's ebb and flow, of course, but we just sort of settle into the current of routine, for better or for worse. So the vision series is a time for us to regroup and ask, uh, what are we doing, and where are we going, and why are we going there, and how are we going to get there? It's a time to make sure that we're on the same page, that we're on board, and that we're ready for another year. Are you guys ready to get into it? Yeah. yeah. Oh, wow, that was surprisingly loud. Thank you very much for that. Well, all right, spirit's up. Let's do this. Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent. For the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. And then Matthew goes on to quote the book of Isaiah. Voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Now, if you know anything about the structure of the New Testament, then you're aware that we have four biographies of the life of Jesus of Nazareth, three of which are called synoptic gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Synoptic is a word that means something like from the same point of view. And we call them this because they share many of the same stories, while the fourth biography of Jesus, the really weird one uh, that we call John, is quite unique among the four, to say the least. And in any event, each of the four biographies, for all their similarities and dissimilarities, are uniquely authored and thus carry the personalities and even the agendas of their respective authors. That to say, they are overall distinct and very different. 
And even so, this little passage that we've just read appears in all four Gospels, which is a, a kind of a unique and special thing. And the passage itself is a prophecy lifted from the book of Isaiah, one that speaks of something called a way, prepare the way for the Lord. In Greek, the word that your Bible translates as way is the Greek word hodas. Uh, more literally, it means a road or a path or a journey. But not unlike similar terms in the English language, hadas was also a sort of symbolic term that was used to describe a way in which one chooses to live. And it appears often throughout the New Testament. In fact, it appears a whopping 101 times. Uh, to be exact, 62 of those are in the Gospels. Here are a few examples to better paint the picture. Let's continue what we began from the teaching's outset, where the man set before two roads and turned just a few pages to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew 7, and let's read beginning in verse 13 when you get there. Jesus says, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. The word Jesus uses, of course, to describe his figurative road in question is hadas. And it's clear enough, he here refers to a way of life and to its subsequent destination. Some read these words and they understand Jesus' warning as something to do with eternity. Jesus is talking about the life after this one. Others assume that he's talking about results in the here and now, the kind of way that you live and what happens as a result. And I would argue that both are correct. Jesus is actually using this brilliant, haunting word picture to describe a way, a road, which leads to fullness of life today on the horizon and in the age to come, or what we would call eternity. And by contrast, he warns of a much easier way which leads to death and destruction that's today, in the future, and in eternity. In Jesus' teaching, the road to death is the popular, alluring, easy way to go. And the road to life, on the other hand, is more difficult and more seemingly uninviting, but it leads to life, so there's that. And notice, one arrives at either destination by a hadas, a way of life. You are en route, one way or the other, you are on this journey. Turn in uh, your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22, just a few pages over. Matthew 22, and let's read another example of a hadas in the New Testament. Matthew 22, verse 15, when you get there. Then the Pharisees, who were religious leaders in the first century, went out and laid plans to trap Jesus in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, or rabbi, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Now notice that even facetiously, Jesus' opponents do acknowledge that he is understood to be a teacher. They call him rabbi. And that he understands himself to be teaching a hadas. He teaches a way of life. Later, the gospel author John will document these words from Jesus himself, if ever there was a bold statement. I, Jesus says, am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus not only teaches a way of life and is understood by his audience and the people of his day to be doing so, Jesus claims to be that way of life as well. And this idea was so ingrained in the earliest disciples of Jesus that their movement, if you will, which became as a small persecuted minority, came to be called and known as, quite simply, the way. The book of Acts, which is a brief history of the early church, records this really well. Look at these examples. 
Saul asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, and the story goes on, but some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death. I worshiped the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way. Then Felix, a, uh, a governmental state leader who was well acquainted with the way, he knew about these guys. And you get the picture. Before there was Christianity, before there was the Christian faith or even the church, there was simply the way. And again, this is a a comparatively small selection uh, into the New Testament's 101 uses of the term, hadas. We didn't even delve into the 707 times that the Hebrew equivalent cameos in the Old Testament. Now, to most of us, all this insight into hadas, the idea that Jesus is teaching and embodying a way of life, a journey, a road, is maybe interesting, but I'm actually getting at something really specific here. The scriptures, Jesus himself and the early church all understood that the way of Jesus is a way of life. And this means, listen, that the way of Jesus is not primarily a set of beliefs nor a system of ethics. The way of Jesus includes a set of beliefs, absolutely. This is why we dedicate a tremendous amount of time to studying the scriptures, the theology, academia, intellect, and so on. But the way of Jesus is more than belief. Uh, the way of Jesus includes a system of ethics, of course, Against the grain of the fragile, modern herd mentality, the way of Jesus does involve moral principles that adherents are meant to actually obey. But the way of Jesus is more than ethics. The way of Jesus is a way of life. It is an all-encompassing means of seeing and understanding the world and the people in it, living every day, making every decision, and orienting every thought. So uh, here's an example. Or an analogy, in Christopher Nolan's 2005 film, Batman Begins, which I'm sure a lot of you have seen, this, this mysterious figure known at this point as Henry Ducard invites Bruce Wayne, this uh, billionaire philanthropist guy, to ascend the eastern slopes of the Himalayas that he might dedicate himself to training in the ancient fortress that belongs to something called the League of Shadows. Now, imagine instead that when Ducard finds Bruce at this time in a Bhutanese prison, he simply asks him about his beliefs and his principles and says, hey, do you believe in justice? Great. Do you have morals? Awesome. Consider yourself a member of the ancient tradition known as the League of Shadows. Uh, you know, you'd think well, some league. This movie is not that impressive. When, when Luke goes to Dagobah to look for Yoda, imagine that he finds Yoda and Yoda says, you know, believe in the force and say a prayer acknowledging that you do believe in the force and then you're a Jedi master pretty much. You can go home. And I realize that these analogies uh, seem on the surface silly or, or geeky or whatever, but much of what is often called American Christianity is understood in exactly the same strange way. That is, following the Protestant Reformation in the 15th century and on into the modern Western civil religion that's often now sort of pejoratively referred to as Christendom, the church has had a tremendous amount to say about belief and about morality. So much so that it's created this strange paradigm in which one can follow Jesus by way of belief and ethics, give or take, and that's it. Nothing more is required, and it simply isn't true. Because we tend to think of belief as a simply uh, intellectual conceit, meaning that I believe the earth revolves around the sun, or I believe that God exists. 
In the New Testament, even the concept of believing in Jesus, which is talked about often, always carries with it the inference that said belief will be realized by one's lifestyle. Meaning in the Bible, you believe in your mind and always with your life as well. To follow Jesus, you must, not unlike Bruce Wayne, uh, ascend the Himalayans, so to speak, and train, so to speak. You must train on Dagobah. You must find Yoda. You must take the road on the left. You must embrace a new, often challenging, often unnatural, and counterintuitive way of life. Think about the way that Jesus makes so vivid a contrast between his way of life and all other ways of life. This road, Jesus says, leads to life. And this road, Jesus says, leads to death. And notice that in Jesus' striking parable, there are only those two options. Meaning, never does Jesus say anything like, well, you know what, there's lots of good roads, mine's one of them, consider it. Uh, No, in Jesus' striking word picture, my way is life, all other ways are death. And he does this, I think, to instill in his audience a sense of urgency, but also a sense of enthusiasm. So if you're coming to Jesus, and he always talked about the way that he had life. He had life to offer. He had life to the fullest. He had, you know, streams of living water, all that. And you're thinking, okay, great. I, I like life. Sounds good to me. How do I get it? Jesus' answer to such a question was always, follow me. Or put another way, come and be my disciple or apprentice. And notice the distinction between Jesus' invitation and the way that the Western church has often framed Christianity. Jesus does not invite would-be disciples to simply believe certain things, nor does he offer a set of isolated rules and that's it. To get the life that Jesus offers, one must actually live the way of Jesus. That is what it means to follow Jesus. You become his apprentice. Uh, Here's a familiar analogy uh, in my personal experience. How many of you know someone or are someone who has at some point purchased a gym membership only to then fail in making use of said gym membership? I understand that it's a thing. At one point, (laughs) Mike has. Do you have one right now? (laughs) When's the last time you went? (laughs) Coming up on the anniversary. Way to go. So there you go. Case in point. Uh, Mike's like Chandler Bing. He has a gym membership and just can't quit, you know. (laughs) So you keep paying for the thing. You don't show up. Uh, The thing is, membership, I'm told, isn't actually enough to get one in shape. Maybe ask Mike about that after the, the... The entire organization and realization of your lifestyle has to change to accommodate this new way of life, or so I'm told. Uh, I've never had a gym membership personally, though my physique seems to insist otherwise. (laughs) I really haven't. We believe... (laughs) Cam said when he was reading that he actually laughed aloud but thanks Cam I just remembered what you said in my mind Uh, we believe that should any person accept the offer to apprentice Jesus to come and follow him they will take on three lifelong goals to be with Jesus to become like Jesus and then to do what Jesus did. Here's a brief word on each of those things. The first is this, be with Jesus. Now, there are several ways of describing this concept. Jesus actually used this metaphor of a vine out of which many branches were growing, and when the branches remain in the vine, they bear fruit. Paul called it a prayer without ceasing. The spiritual discipline is called the practice of the presence of God. The idea is about learning to maintain an ongoing awareness of and connectedness to God. So on your 
uh, in your morning time of prayer and devotion with God, on your morning commute to work and in the presence of God, in the messy cacophony of chaos and life and with God at all times. This is actually the first goal of apprenticeship, life with God. Second, you become like Jesus, something we call spiritual formation. But the concept is actually not unique to Christian spirituality. Spiritual formation is a human concept, meaning every single one of you is being formed into someone else. And it works out a little something like this. Um, You are being formed by the stories that you believe, um, depending on the environment in which you were raised, the things you were brought up to believe, the things that you learn from the people around you, uh, by your habits, meaning if you're the type of person that gets up and does coffee the exact same way every day, you're the type of person that likes coffee that way. You're being formed into that person. Relationships, the people around you inform your decisions and your thinking, and of course, your environment. That environment could be your family, or the Pacific Northwest, or your city, or your town, or your workplace, whatever it might be. Um, And that's going to happen one way or the other. It happens over time, and it happens through your experiences. But we believe in something called counterformation, which is intentional spiritual formation. It does not come naturally. You have to make it happen. That happens through teaching, what we're doing right now, studying the scriptures, Bible, theology, podcast, reading, that sort of thing. It happens through practice, the spiritual disciplines. We'll get to that in a second. It happens in community with other disciples of Jesus, people sitting around you right now. And it all happens in the environment of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who enables the disciple of Jesus to actually do these things. And that's going to happen over time and through the hard knocks of life or through suffering and experiences is another way of putting it. This, we think, is how we seek to subvert the way that we are being formed passively and deliberately seek out and impose on our lives Jesus-centric spiritual formation. And we become like Jesus. And finally, the third goal of every apprentice of Jesus is to do what Jesus did. So I have a friend uh, named Kyle who's part of Van City. Um, He works just up the street at Hopeless Inc. And at any given time, he might work alongside an apprentice, a tattoo apprentice. And like any apprentice, this ambitious artist-to-be must be with other tattoo artists. That's part of the job. Uh, Become like other tattoo artists so they learn the lingo and the trade and the lifestyle rhythms necessary to excel in their work. But of course, it's all leading up to the day on which they will do what their teachers do. So imagine uh, an apprentice to a tattoo artist or a plumber or an electrician or a kung fu master or whatever it might be. Imagine they spend an incredible amount of time with their teacher, adopting their approach to life, and one day the teacher says to the student, you are ready. And then imagine the student saying, hey, well, thanks. Thanks for all the information and the good times. I guess I'll go back to my old life now. Uh, Apprenticeship is about carrying on the work of your teacher and doing what they do. If your teacher is Jesus then that means that you will learn how to heal the sick and drive out demons and and prayer and prophecy, sharing the gospel, eating and drinking with people far from God, practicing simplicity and generosity and speaking truth to uh, religious hypocrites and political power and nonviolence and on down the list. You will carry on the work of the kingdom of God. So those are the goals. Be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and then eventually do what Jesus did. It is a bit like scaling the eastern Himalayas to find the League of Shadows or even buying and utilizing a gym membership. Apparently, it's a useful thing. Following Jesus requires one to organize their entire lives around these three goals. And again, that word organize is employed with great intentionality on my part. You, of course, are already 
orienting your time to accommodate the things most precious to you. You're doing that every day already. Think about it like this. Uh, Here comes the deep water. If you spend more time on one thing than you do on another thing, it's because you choose to spend more time on one thing than you do on another thing. Um, I've told you guys before that I believe no one should be allowed to say I didn't have time. I think that everyone should be forced to employ the more accurate, I chose not to make time for dot, dot, dot. If you spend more time on, say, Instagram than you do in the scriptures, it's because that's what you chose to do. If you spend more time on Netflix than in prayer, again, your call. If you spend more time looking at your phone than you do engaging your kids or your spouse or your friends, that choice was completely yours. Now, if you follow Jesus... You have the Holy Spirit inside you, which means that the truest, most real dimension of your personhood, even when your behavior suggests otherwise, is that you desire the things of God. Of course, you often live in a way that suggests otherwise, but you don't have to. Following Jesus is about structuring your life with great intentionality because Christ-likeness is not natural using your calendar, your alarm, your schedule, your willpower to prioritize the way of Jesus and make it happen. And when you do, you begin to experience the life that Jesus offers. And what is a vision series without a Dallas Willard quote? Uh, He says it's something like this. You must arrange your days so that you are experiencing deep contentment, joy, and confidence in your everyday life with God. And I love the way he puts that because he presupposes that it won't just happen. You must arrange your days so that you are experiencing life with God. And that kind of brings us to our headline, if you will, of the vision of Van City Church, which is this idea of practicing the way of Jesus together. So turn with me just one more time in your Bible, if you still have it, to Matthew chapter 5. Uh, we've been studying the Sermon on the Mount for months prior to the vision series, so if you've been around the text from the beginning of Jesus' collection of teachings, we'll be quite familiar. Uh, when you get to Matthew chapter 5, let's read verse 19. Jesus says, Anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. That to say, among other things, that Jesus' manifesto for how his disciples are to live is something that one practices. Now look at Matthew chapter 7, just a couple chapters over, and let's read the way that Jesus concludes the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 24. Therefore, Jesus says, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash." Now notice that for Jesus to hear his teaching and to believe it to be true seems to be of little consequence. He doesn't even comment on that at all. Jesus is concerned with the person who hears his words and puts them into practice. Such a person is building a home for themselves that will stand up against the hardship of life, as it were. This other fellow who either rejects Jesus' words altogether or maybe he believes them, He believes all the right things, but does not put them into practice. Jesus says they are building a life that will end in destruction. 
never a one for pulling his punches and calling it like it is, this Jesus guy. And remember, this is the funniest part. These are the closing remarks in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has just elucidated his detailed manifesto for life in the kingdom of God. It's a collection of teachings that is as provocative as it is beautiful. And he ends by saying, so listen, if you actually prioritize these things, you will experience life. If you don't, you will experience death. Two roads. You can choose one of them. Both are ways of life, meaning ways in which you can live, and you will go down one or the other. So you have to pick. Now, I want to mention a brief word on what it means to practice the way of Jesus in the pragmatic sense. In this case, the answer is sort of in the question, meaning the way of Jesus takes practice. A couple of years ago, I decided to start skateboarding. Always been a fan, never done it until a couple of years ago. I'm uh, 34 now. I'm a dad, a pastor. You know, I've got to do what I can to maintain my punk rock credibility. It's, uh, it's not going to come natural, you know. I can't just buy a gym membership and never go. So I got a skateboard, uh, some of my friends, some of whom were experienced, others of us not so much. And I started going uh, every week with a group of guys to this place called Skate Church. It's in southeast Portland. Um, here's a video from my very first time I ever went there. This is what happened. I notice my friend just stands there filming me. <laughs> yeah, that's it. <laughs> yeah, I did wear a helmet. It doesn't help when you hit your chin. So uh, all these folks were having this great time dropping in, is what you call it, on the ramps. You know, I wanted to be one of them. I wanted to have a good time like they were. So instead, I got a concussion. <laughs> uh, I passed out twice on the way home, and I spent the rest of the evening in the emergency room making Patrick sit with me and wait. Uh, and I even missed my next day of seminary classes. So my professor played this video in class to explain why I wasn't there. Now, if that's not street cred, I don't know what is. <laughs> Josh missed theology, too, because he fell skateboarding. It's not that impressive. Well, what I'm getting at is that if you'd actually like to be among the folks enjoying themselves at the skate park, you know, dropping in effortlessly, you can't just try really hard. <laughs> That's what I did. It takes practice. So I kept going every week for months and months and months, and I learned to actually enjoy myself skating with my friends without brain trauma. It's a beautiful thing. <laughs> um, and that seems like a given, but I wish, I so wish, that we would approach the things of Jesus in the same way. Because it seems to me that so many of us realize, we, we know full well that like we should pray or we should want to pray or we should fight lust or we should steward intimacy with God and with people in our lives, um, but we don't know exactly how to get from where we are, which is not doing those things at all, to doing them effortlessly. So we just try really hard and it's a bit like falling and hitting your head and getting a concussion and then you're like, forget this, I'm not doing it anymore. But if you practice... If you learn and grow and keep at it, and then you fail and you get up and you go back week after week, if you discover you've become more capable over time, then you realize that you fall less. And it's still really hard, of course, but you can actually do it. It's well within the realm of your capabilities. Practicing the way of Jesus is about organizing your life in such a way that you actually do practice. And for thousands of years now, the disciples of Jesus have gone about this with something that we call the spiritual disciplines, or what we like to call advanced city, the practices of Jesus. They are ancient disciplines taken from the life and lifestyle of Jesus of Nazareth 
things like prayer or reading the scriptures or going to church or living in community and on down the list. And they enable Jesus' disciples to practice what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. At Van City, we go about this with the guided curriculum that we take on in our communities together as a group. We sit down, we learn um, different about, say, like different types of prayer was the last thing that we went to. And then we actually try to practice it together. We take on the practices, we keep at them, we, we discipline ourselves, we organize our lives around the way of Jesus, and suddenly we find ourselves slowly becoming the type of people who can actually do the things that Jesus did, and we actually are experiencing the life that Jesus offers. In the words of D Dallas Willard, organizing our day in such a way to experience the life of God. But of course, I mentioned that we actually do this in the context of community. So in the Sermon on the Mount, each time Jesus says the word you, the word is always plural with the exception of the three times Jesus talks about deliberate secrecy, you know, praying in secret, giving in secret, and fasting in secret. Jesus always speaks to you, plural, a community of disciples of Jesus. In fact, the bulk of the New Testament is written to groups of disciples. And even the letters that are addressed to individuals, the author assumes that that individual is carrying out their discipleship along with other disciples of Jesus. Meaning the authors of the New Testament, Jesus himself, don't say like, hey, listen, you got to do this together with other people. They simply assume that's the only way that it can be done. You cannot apprentice Jesus alone. And this is really not hyperbole. I remember once uh, traveling, playing music. This is more than a decade ago. And I was at this diner in New York with this other musician with whom I had, was traveling at the time. And this gentleman was uh, had a very sort of traditional story. He was raised in a conservative Christian environment. He'd become cynical about Christian culture, but he had yet to give up on Jesus altogether. So he sat across from me, you know, sort of thoughtfully stroking his long beard. I'm not making fun of the beard or anything. It was a cool beard. And he was smoking a cigarette and drinking coffee. And I, I asked him questions about what he thought about Jesus. I was getting to be friends with him. And he said, man, you know, I'm just not into church. Uh, I'm not into other Christians, but I do like Jesus. He seems pretty cool. So I just want to figure out how to follow him by myself. And of course, his story isn't unique at all. The tale of the sort of disillusioned former Christian who abandons church or abandons orthodoxy in favor of some sort of new fluid hybrid faith of their own design is to my estimation becoming a sort of sad cliche. Uh, for every one disciple who's committed to community and to the scriptures and to historic orthodox discipleship, there are dozens of famously people not doing those things, like the Rob Bells and Donald Millers and Rachel Held Evans and liturgists of the world. I get it. And they are amassing for themselves their own disciples. And I get why. It totally makes sense. I'm not making fun of them at all. But what I asked this gentleman in this cafe all those years ago was like, how? How will you follow Jesus by yourself? That sounds to me like a wonderful way to come up with a Jesus entirely of your own design, because who's going to speak into your life and your discipleship? Community brings out both the best and the worst in you. Uh, it's like marriage in that way. You know, when you choose to live in any level of closeness and vulnerability with other human beings, when you invite them to walk with you and help you, and, they, and you pledge to do the same thing for them, suddenly there's someone there to call you on your crap. It's horrifying. And suddenly you're expected to do the same thing for someone else, which is also horrifying. It requires courage. And there are other people there to draw your attention to the scriptures and be like, no, that's not what the scriptures teach. Or is that what the scriptures teach? Let's look there together. Or to listen to the Spirit on your behalf, to pray for you and with you. Your faith isn't taking place in a vacuum of isolation. So if you flake, someone will say something. Or if you fail, someone will help you back up. 
If you have questions, someone will be there to ask them with you and wrestle with you and think and pray. It isn't the easier way to live, that's for sure, but it is the better way to live according to the scriptures. There are two roads. And at Van City, our paradigm for community is twofold. So we gather here as a family on Sundays. You did it. Great job. Um, and we gather throughout the week in smaller groups of about 10 or 15 people, give or take, called Van City Communities. On Sunday, we do what we don't do in smaller groups. So there's like 100 people, give or take, all singing together, taking the bread and the cup of communion, learning from the scriptures, enjoying laughter and togetherness as a great big family of disciples. When we meet in Van City Communities, we do what we can't do on Sundays, which is a smaller, more intimate group of people getting to know one another with vulnerability, sharing a meal around a table, or in our case, in my community, it's like around a table and a living room and a living room floor and a couch with like two million kids running around screaming their heads off. And just, this is a bit of advice for you, if you do have kids in your community, you know what helps them get their energy out? A dance party, look at this. Just so you know, all the kids in our community aren't represented in this video. Some of them are out of the frame. It's, it's, it's a real thing. Pray for us. <laughs> anyway, when we finally calm down, we actually take on the practices of Jesus together. We hold one another accountable. We help one another. We encourage one another. We're involved in one another's lives and stories and knowing where we're at and how to pray for one another and what we're struggling with, what we're excelling, all that stuff. And listen to me, for, for Van City, for us personally, both expressions of community, the Sunday gathering and the smaller community throughout the week, are equally important. We believe that there's sort of two sides of the same coin, that coin being our church. If you're in a community, but you're not committing to the Sunday gathering, then you're missing out. If you're here on Sunday, but you've yet to get into a community, you're missing out. That is the vision of Van City Church. That is what we are inviting you to either join or to consider or to continue if you've been at it already. And wherever you're at in that process or figuring it out, you're absolutely welcome here. We're not guilting or rushing you or pressuring you, nothing like that. We're just inviting you into our vision of what we want as a church. And if you should join us, we will ask of you five things. The first is to practice the way of Jesus with us to train with the League of Shadows, so to speak, to fly to Dagobah, you know, to set out for a way of life, not just a system of beliefs and not just a list of ethics, but to actually practice the way of Jesus together. We go about that in community, gathering around a table with other people and to take on the spiritual disciplines week in and week out to share life, to walk that narrow road together, not in isolation. We go about that by gathering here every Sunday. We want you to value this time, to invest in this time, meaning to actually show up, not only when your schedule's clear, not only when the sun isn't out, but to honor this time with focused discipline as one very important means by which you practice the way of Jesus. And I believe I actually get to call you guys uh, to that standard because despite the fact that I'm a pastor and I work here and all that, I was at one point the cliche that I harped, harped on just moments ago. I was raised in the deep south, a fundamentalist Southern Baptist upbringing, um, I was asked to leave the church that I grew up in when I discovered punk rock. 
Um, I was cynical. I was embittered. Uh, I loved Jesus, but I gave up on fake church, you know. I was going to have my own community rather than sort of forcing this ritualistic charade that all these other guys were doing. And really, it wasn't until uh, about seven years ago that I returned to the idea of faithfully investing in a church family Sunday after Sunday. Uh, So as someone who has tried both ways for extended periods of time, I have since come to sincerely believe that this thing that we call the church, and by that I don't just mean like you doing your Jesus thing and that's church, I mean like Sunday gathering, the community, the togetherness of disciples, that it should be a core tenet in the life of every disciple of Jesus. Not just this extra thing you do, not just a place for you to come and get fed by, you know, like the speakers you like, presumably not me, or the band that you like, presumably the one that just played, and, you know, the vibes that you like. Uh, We don't want you to come here in the evening after you visit your home church. We're looking for people who are ready to invest in this place as a family or invest in whatever home that you, you, you know, you've made, whatever church you've made your home at, but gather on Sunday. And to avoid the tendency to consume only, treating the church as if it were a product, we ask you to serve. You know, the idea is that in a healthy family, everyone pitches in. And there's a reason that we choose to describe what we do on Sunday night as a gathering rather than a service, which is a more traditional language. A service is something offered for others to come and consume. We provided this service for you. But gathering is when people come together, and it's not just to take, but they give as well. A friend of mine at uh, Bridgetown Church in Portland, the church that planted us, was telling me the other day that, to his estimation, the people who actually enjoy the church the most and get the most out of it are the ones who serve, the ones who, like, show up early or stay late or do something to pitch in during the gathering. Uh, When Abby and I, my wife, first moved to the Northwest and became involved with the church that planted us, uh, the first thing that we did, because we didn't know anyone, we really didn't know anyone, it's just the two of us, was uh, sign up to stay late and like move the chairs back into place and vacuum with these big Ghostbusters vacuum cleaners that they had. And it was really no big deal. They could have found a million other people to do it. But honestly, I really believe uh, or know experientially that this gesture was what connected us to that community in the beginning when we first got there and didn't have any friends or didn't know anyone. And frankly, it's what began our journey that has led to this, this thing that you're sitting in right now, which is Van City Church. Uh, And believe me, at Van City, we're a very small church. You can see that by looking around. And our team is even smaller, very tiny. Uh, We need a tremendous amount of help. And anyone who serves in any given area will tell you, yes, we need a tremendous amount of help. So help set up or help tear down on a Sunday night, play in the band, if if you can do that. You know, if you can't, don't. Uh, make coffee and, and ready the communion or, or lead a community or join the safety team or run sound, if, again, if you can do that, or run the slides or, for the love of God, help with the kids, you know? Am I right, folks who serve downstairs? For the love of God, help with the kids. We need all the help we can get. The idea is that you would treat Van City as a family. Pitch in in ways that are realistic for your season of life. We're not asking you to do anything unhealthy or things that you can't do. But we really have ways to serve that are very tiny and require very little and ways to serve that are a bit more of a time investment. Find a way that makes sense for your season of life and pitch in. And finally, the last thing we ask is that you give. To realize the vision, vision and the mission of Van City requires finances, frankly. From the very beginning of the Church of Jesus, we have always pulled together funds that the church can thrive and do good things. If we don't embody generosity, then really we just simply can't do this thing. Uh, and, and honestly, 
If Van City is your home, we ask you to give finances and to support the churches that way, as well as the justice work that we help fund here in the Northwest and all over the city. So that's it. Practice the way of Jesus, join a Van City community, gather on Sundays, serve, and give. If you want to come with us, that's what we're inviting you into. That's what we ask of you if you want to be a part of this submission or this uh, vision. Every one of our leaders is living into these things on a regular basis. We won't ask you to do things that we aren't doing ourselves. For better or for worse, we're trying, we're finding our way as we go along. And we're going to spend the next couple of weeks uh, talking a bit more in depth about how we plan to go about this and what it'll look like. But that's sort of the overview to do these things practice the way of Jesus together. Next week, Cameron will be here to talk more about how we're going to do this in community, and then the week after, we'll sort of bring it all together as I talk about uh, how we're going to try to attempt this in this insane current cultural moment that we're in. So that'll be fun. Anyway, there was once a group of men and women who were made to complete a journey. Eventually, that journey led them down a road that concluded in a fork. To the right, the road was wide and accommodating. The terrain was flat and even. It was covered in soft green grass. The sky was bright and blue and cloudless overhead. A homely wooden sign marking the path on its gnarled, weathered surface fixed a single word, death. To their left, these men and women beheld a second road that was tight and winding, overgrown with thorns and brambles, lining both sides a canopy of leafless branches enclosing overhead. It was dark and frightening, and set before it was a sign not unlike the first in appearance, but written across it was a different word, life. And knowing life would not be easy, but that death was the way of fools, they decided to walk the way of life together. So, brothers and sisters, let us practice the way of Jesus together. Let me pray and invite the Spirit to come as we worship together once again.